And so it was painful enough that that was the first choice for me. Like, not only do I need to go to the doctor, I need to go to the emergency room because this is not right. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, Zach Shiner. It's almost May. It's COVID. It's everywhere. It's all we talk about. Uh, last month on ED ECMO, we had Janelle Bajulak, and we went through the indications of VV ECMO and what's going on in the world. Uh, since then, Elso has done a fantastic job with webinars. Velia with at Foam ECMO uh, and all the Twitter crew have been keeping us up to speed on what's going on worldwide. We know patients have been saved. We know the ER physician in, in Seattle, uh, who was one of the first people in the U.S., put on VV ECMO, now is alive. Uh, great stuff happening. But, uh, but today... We're going to step away. We're going to give you a break from COVID, and we are going to take you on a completely opposite journey. We've talked about indications and contraindications for eCPR, indications for ECMO in the ED. And on that list, almost every single time, is aortic dissection. I want you to rethink that. I want to question that. I want to make you think at the, your core on whether that is the right or wrong answer. And today I've got somebody to join me to talk about a case we recently had, and that is Garrett Sterling. Thank you, Garrett, for joining us. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here. So Garrett's a rock star. He's with us at Sharp Memorial. He is now heading up a big portion of what we're doing for cardiac arrest management in San Diego and how we're trying to change the landscape, just like so many of you out there are changing your city's landscape. How do you deal with these patients in cardiac arrest and how we can improve survival? Garrett is is really doing a great job for us in San Diego, and hopefully we're going to have some more info from that by the end of this year. Well, I appreciate that. It's very nice. Thank you. So the case that we have, interestingly enough, had Garrett, myself, and Joe Belezzo, you know from ED ECMO, uh, all involved with it at Sharp. And and so Garrett, just real briefly, like what's the basics of this guy's story? Yeah, this is, this is a pretty wild case. So 41-year-old guy, no other real medical problems, pretty healthy, comes in with some chest pain. Initially didn't look too bad, and then very quickly after arrival, everybody kind of realized, whoa, this guy's very sick. Uh, within, I think, an hour of being in the department, he got whisked off to CT, and then before we could get the CT, he's writhing around, he's moving, he's, 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 he's in a lot of pain, and before we can even shoot the CT, he goes into cardiac arrest on the machine. Uh, quick round of CPR, I think it was one round, and then you guys got him back. Um, at that point, he got lines and tubes and all the, the normal cardiac arrest stuff in the CT machine, actually. Uh, we got ROSC. We were finally able to try and get the, the CT done. But two more times, he goes into what looks like a V-fib arrest. He got defibrillated on the CT machine, pulled out, okay, put back in when he got the ROSC. Finally, we hit the CT, and it's a large, large aortic dissection, all the way down from the root, all the way down towards the, the iliacs. At that point, he was fairly hypotensive. I mean, he had, he had coded three times before we got the CT. So he was fairly hypotensive. We turned the levofed up to 30, and he had some epi going, and I think people were grabbing vaso. But with those, with those uh, 
vasopressors, he did have an adequate blood pressure. He had a map of 65-ish with, with all those pressors going. But then we brought him back to the room, and the problem at that point was he was severely, severely hypoxic. Okay, before uh, we get into the hypoxic area, because yeah. this is a great part of this case, I, I want us to just take that step back, and for all of you out there, just to sort of get you into that moment, right? You've got a patient, they're sick. Um, I was actually in the in the ER that's right next to the CT scanner. So when this guy arrests on the CT scanner, uh, you know, went in there, we immediately are thinking, okay, is this guy a candidate for eCPR? Yeah, witnessed arrest, young guy, like, let's get it on. So we call the ECMO team down. Um, myself and Joe start putting in some placeholder lines. And and then, but we all know, we, in the back of our mind, we're thinking, this is not ACS. Like, this is probably a dissection. And the guy is... Um, arresting. We're like, okay, we're just going to have to bite the bullet and get the CT scan uh, in between these arrests that he's having. So kind of a, you know, a weird case in the sense that do you get the CT scan because you know that that diagnosis is going to change everything around your potential management of him. We elected to do that. And then of course he has the aortic dissection. So now we're at the point of, well, the literature tells us Aortic dissection is a contraindication for eCPR. Is that a reality? Is that something that we should we should acknowledge? And so, Garrett, your thoughts uh, just at that point in the rest. Do we consider VA ECMO for this guy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think VA ECMO definitely needs to be considered. And if he is in and out of cardiac arrest, I think it is entirely reasonable to put him on VA ECMO, even considering thinking that he might have a dissection or even if we knew that he had a dissection. I mean, the end result is you can't get more, you can't get more dead than already dead. And so if we weren't able to get his blood pressure up, if we weren't able to maintain a perfusing blood pressure with vasopressors alone, I think we were all ready to put him on VA ECMO at that point. Okay, so, and Garrett and I are gonna get a little bit into the literature uh, later on, but at that point, we're thinking, okay, like VA ECMO is still a legitimate option. In fact, Joe, Joe Belezzo had a case we've had on ED ECMO several years ago of an aortic dissection with tamponade, got put on VA ECMO, and walked out of the hospital. I mean, this is, this is, this happens, and so, we're at that same place, young, healthy guy. Can you just throw the Hail Mary and try and put him on VA ECMO, even though you're getting intermittent ROSC and you know, potentially you're making harm? So it's a, it's a risk-benefit analysis. So Garrett, after that, he goes back to the bed, and what happens? So when he gets back to the bed, he is profoundly hypoxic. Uh, you know, he's intubated. He's on the vent. We had uh, FiO2 of 100%. We had PEEP of 20, 24, something in that range. Uh, there is there is water, there is frothy pulmonary edema, like handful. I, I can't, I've never seen anything like this. Handfuls of water just pouring out of his ET tube. We can't get end tidal waveforms because the 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 device is soaking wet. Uh, and our best sats are kind of in the low mid fifties. So on that, he's satting about let's say fifty five percent with with water just pouring out of his ET tube. Okay, so now we've got the next decision, and this is where really Joe, um, I mean, just major props to Joe because uh, the decision was made to put him on VV ECMO. We, it, I think we were all kind of too, too close to him at the time because we, were, we weren't really thinking, 
like why is he so profoundly hypoxic? Why is there so much fluid into his lungs? Of course, in hindsight, it, it makes perfect sense. But at the time, we were kind of trying to put all these diagnoses together. Were we missing something? And, uh, and so the decision was made to put him on VV ECMO. What were the configurations that we used, Garrett? So uh, I went up to the neck. I put in a, a 19 French uh, arterial cannula in the right internal jugular vein. And Joe put in a 21 French uh, venous cannula into the one of the groin sites. I think he, he used the, uh, the right groin for his venous line. And we got him on VV ECMO pretty quickly once we made the decision, I think less than five minutes, you know, cause the whole team was already there and everything. Uh, and then once we got him on VV ECMO, it took about another two to three minutes after we turned on the machine, after we turned on the pump, but almost two to three minutes later, we had his sats up to a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing. So his sats go up. We did a, a jugular femoral configuration. We were able. We did not use heparin, and we put the flows up pretty high. Uh, and this was a recent, you know, discussion on Twitter as far as what, how do you run these with these circuits without heparin? And yeah, we did actually have pretty high flows. And then we had him taken to the operating room. And this mm-hmm. is where another uh, huge, huge kudos goes out to our two CT surgeons, Carl Limmer and Craig Larson, who spent the entire night um, working on this guy and repairing a ton of different things. What all happened in the operating room? I, I mean, he, I think Limmer was in there for at least 10 or 12 hours. They, they did a complete repair. They basically put in a whole new body on this guy. So they go in, uh, the dissection went um, all the way down to the aortic root, which is, which is not too surprising because I think I think that's where that that flash pulmonary edema came from. So the aortic valve was trashed. Uh, it had dissected off um, the great vessels coming off the arch, um, and it had dissected into the coronary arteries. It had it had dissected into the the left main as well. So what Dr. Limmer actually did is he put the guy on bypass, and to do that he did a uh, cut down to the right axillary artery and then put in his bypass circuit to the right axillary artery through a, through a chimney graft. And then he put in a second arterial line into the left femoral artery for his arterial access. He had two arterial sites. We had a left, ar- left femoral arterial site and a right axillary arterial site. And so the circuit that he used in the OR was he took the two cannulas that Joe and I used, those two venous cannulas, wired them together and used that as his venous drainage. And then he took his two arterial cannulas from the femoral artery and the right axillary artery, wide those two together, and used those as his arterial inflow sites for his, for his pump. Okay. So let's just cut to the chase. This guy gets out of the operating room, gets off ECMO within, I'm not even, not even sure, it's like less than two days, uh, and is out of the hospital just a few days after that. I mean, just remarkable turnaround he within a couple of days it just looks like he's you know a normal functioning young guy yeah i mean incredible i I went and checked on him two days after that and he was sitting upright in his bed uh took off his nasal cannula so he could eat a sandwich and was saying hi (laughs) yeah aortic dissection 
cardiac arrest, profoundly hypoxic, gets saved from VV ECMO and a couple of CT surgeons who just decided never to give up. I mean, it's, it's an amazing case. Yeah, it was, it was, it was incredible. It's incredible to watch him walk out of the hospital and it was incredible to be a part of. Okay. So let's, let's get down into the nuts and bolts here, Garrett. This guy, or actually any person, has an aortic dissection, and we're considering VA ECMO. We're considering putting a femoral arterial line in. What is the risk of us doing that? So I think that there's some things we have to consider when we're doing uh, when we're doing VA ECMO on somebody with dissection. So there are some relative contraindications. There's some reasons why we may not want to do it. Uh, you're getting retrograde flow through the aorta, which in and of itself is thought to be probably problematic. Um, the dissection, as it goes down, you know, farther and farther distally, it's not one true, it's not one flap with just two separate, entirely separate pathways. That dissection flap is going to go in and out and in and out. It's going to have little holes in it. And so these things are connected more like two lanes on a highway that you can drive in and out of rather than a hard barrier. And so there's this idea, well, if you're putting flow in the other direction, you can take clot that's in the false lumen and shoot it up retrograde. So you increase your risk of cerebral embolization, you know, strokes, that kind of thing. You can get this, what they call a flutter valve effect, where your flows are kind of limited by the fact that there's this thing flapping in the wind that's going to block you. So you can get obstruction, you can get malperfusion, you can get bad flow rates. Those would kind of be some of the main ones. You can get obstruction of um, you, know, you can get poor malperfusion to other organs on your way up because of because of the thrombus that you have in that false lumen. So there are some there are some concerns about putting flow in retrograde through the aorta as opposed to antegrade how he did it. You know, Dr. Limmer put in the the line into the right axillary artery, which immediately feeds the right subclavian and then up the aortic arch and then down. So you get this antegrade flow coming from his the way that he did it. Yeah, so the, the risk is, are you going to shoot a clot into the brain? If you shoot a clot into the leg, oh well, right? Because if you're, mm -hmm. because it's the same thing. If you've got the, the perfusion coming through the axillary artery, you still got flow going, which of course you need. Uh, you just don't have the as severe of an end organ damage. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, you, you minimize your risk for, for throwing clot to the brain, and you increase your chance of... Uh, by, by putting in the flow retrograde, you increase the chance that you're going to get bad flow rate. So you're going to get obstruction and malperfusion from bad flow rates because of that thrombus and the false lumen and the fact that you're going to get this flutter valve effect. So if you do anterograde perfusion, uh, you can, you, it's thought that you can minimize those. Okay. So now there's a few articles out there. The risk, what, do we have any idea of what the risk of perfusing this false lumen is? Yes. So there, the, the data on that does not come from ECMO studies because there's almost no data out there at all anywhere in the world's literature about doing VA ECMO on, on a dissection patient. There's one case report and that's the world's literature on VA ECMO. So all of this data comes from how they do it in the OR when they want to put people on their bypass circuit. And so basically if it, the data says that 
about 20 years ago, the majority of cases were done through a femoral arterial access site. They weren't doing the axillary artery or central cannulation nearly as often as they are today. And when they did, when they when they started to look at the data, they found, you know what, the mortality rate's a little bit higher, the risk of stroke is a little bit higher, the risk of problems is a little bit higher if you do it from this femoral arterial site, which is why people have shifted to the axillary artery site. Okay, so I looked at this data as well, and it is, it, I mean, it's not apples to apples, but it's, it's a reasonable thing, because what we're trying to assess is what is the risk to the patient. If they're in cardiac arrest, like, the risk probably outweighs, or the benefit outweighs the risk, right? They're going to die if you do nothing. You might as well do something. If they're in cardiogenic shock or they've gotten ROSC, well, it's a little bit more difficult. So, so I have to get my hands around what is the actual risk. And the number that I got, and maybe you've gotten the same number, Garrett, is that 9.1% of these false lumens get perfused when you do a femoral arterial approach. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. And then only a subset of those patients actually have this clot throw off into their brain. I think it was around a 3% rate of having a um, stroke as a result of getting retrograde perfusion of that false lumen. Yeah. Depending on the exact study you're looking at, these numbers seem accurate. Okay. So in a cardiac arrest situation, a 9% perfusion rate and a 3% CVA rate seems extraordinarily low. Yes, extraordinarily low. And just to just to push that even further, it is still considered totally acceptable for the cardiothoracic surgeons to put people on femoral arterial bypass circuits, to use the femoral artery as their site, even today, not knowing if you're in the, the true lumen or the false lumen, not knowing, you know, even though these risks exist, it is still considered totally reasonable to use that as a primary first approach, especially if somebody's in shock where you don't want to spend the time to do a right axillary artery dissection. Because when they're in the operating room, they're doing this axillary artery dissection before they ever do their sonotomy or start the case. So the whole idea that they're going to take 20 minutes to do an axillary artery dissection to get, to get this perfusion is, is not something that they're going to do in a patient who's unstable or that they think is about to code. They're going to start with the, the femoral arteries. They're going to start their perfusion that way. And then they may switch cannulation site later in the case. Okay. Any thoughts on heparin use in this situation? Yeah. I think it is entirely reasonable to give heparin to these people. I know that in this case, we we chose not to, which, which I think is reasonable also. But I think uh, knowing what I know now, I would probably give heparin. And when I talk to our cardiothoracic surgeons, they seem to have no qualms about, about giving heparin. The risk of of thrombosis, of embolization from the pump seems to seems to outweigh any potential risk of propagating this aortic dissection. It seems that most of the problems that they have from the aortic dissection are thrombotic in nature, uh, and they were not at all worried about giving heparin to a patient with a dissection, presuming that they're going to the OR expeditiously. You know, they all laughed and said, yeah, we wouldn't give him Eliquis to send him home. But if he's going to the OR in the next hour, yeah, heparin, no problem, which, which seems very reasonable to me. Which, which I think this sort of plays into what, what are our fears about the aortic dissection? Like one of my thoughts initially was that we were going to somehow 
perforate the aorta, that we were going to cause aortic rupture because the it's a thin walled vessel now, and now we we're putting uh, different flows and maybe even higher pressures, vectors of, of flow at different areas. It doesn't sound like that's the issue. The issue is a thrombotic stroke, and so maybe giving heparin is actually completely necessary and probably more beneficial than in other cases. Would you argue that? Yeah, yeah, I would. And in fact, when when our cardiothoracic surgeon Limmer took over the case, you know, we put him on VV ECMO and then Limmer took him to the OR. So Limmer had him within the next half hour. The, one of the first things he did was was load him on heparin. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's think about this from a just a uh, cardiac arrest burden uh, idea. So if this is a once in a million case, all right, whatever. You know, we can we can talk about it, but it's really not terribly applicable. But the literature says something different. The literature says that about 7% out of hospital cardiac arrest are from aortic dissection. And guess what? These are younger people. I mean, sometimes they're older people as well, but but like this guy, classic example. Our other case was a, as a younger guy as well. These are young patients who have potential for many, many years left to live if we can just fix this one thing. This is maybe not as esoteric as we originally thought. No, I mean, not only is it not esoteric, I think it's probably more common than we realize. And I think that these are great candidates for VA ECMO if they have all of our other normal inclusion criteria. Just like you're saying, these are young, basically healthy people that go into a sudden cardiac arrest. And if they're witnessed, if you get minimal low flow times, I think these are great cases to put on VA ECMO. I think that our surgeons can use our femoral access sites without any difficulty. I think that you do increase the chance of some complications by putting them on this this femoral arterial retrograde flow, but compared to certain death, I you know clearly I would choose one over the other. Okay, so now we get into this VV approach, which was you know I don't, I don't this has never been documented in the literature, certainly not by emergency physicians. Uh, this is something that maybe is just this one case, or we think we're going to see this more often once we start looking for it. No, I I think that I think that this was a unique case in 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 a few respects. One, his aortic dissection dissected out his aortic valve, uh, and if you don't have an aortic valve, you get this terrible aortic insufficiency, and he got flashed terrible pulmonary edema, just terrible terrible pulmonary edema as a result of losing his aortic valve. So I think this case is unique in the fact that he had basically total loss of his aortic valve, complete aortic insufficiency, but was able to maintain an adequate map with vasopressor support alone. So that's where the that's where this case differentiates itself. The fact that we were able to maintain a map with vasopressors, but he totally lost his aortic valve. If his SATs are in the 50s, it is it is a ticking time bomb before he gets an oxid brain injury, before he gets diffuse myocardial ischemia as a result of this hypoxia. You know, your coronary arteries, your your heart takes out a lot of that of that oxygen uh, perfusion from the from those coronary arteries. Your brain requires a lot of that oxygen that you're pumping. If you don't have it, you are you are not going to survive this case. I mean, the number one way that these that these patients end up being injured is with with severe neurologic um, 
basically, you know, like total neurologic impairment, CPC scores of four and five and stuff like that. So I think this case is unique in the fact that we were able to get a blood pressure, but we're not able to oxygenate this patient. And so in this case, we went right after the oxygenation problem, which I think is is the right way to go. You minimize the potential risks of being on retrograde flow from that femoral artery because we, we didn't need to do that yet. But we but we didn't let him remain critically hypoxic for any appreciable amount of time that he didn't need to be. Okay, so I'm not going to get into this in detail, but the whole risks associated with VV ECMO are still there. It's the same concept about VA is, is do the benefits outweigh the risks? You can kind of all think about that on your own. Let's get into though, there's been a recent kind of literature battle out there. I wouldn't say battle, I'd say case report coming out of the University of Utah, which was awesome. They used TEE, they said, hey, this patient had a dissection seen on TEE, and therefore we did not do ECMO. Um, a guy that wrote back who's, who's actually, I'll put all these, these articles in the show notes, great, great uh, rebuttal, saying, hey, he was going to die. You, he did die. Could you have saved him? And, and the question is, uh, at this point in their, in their ECMO program, they didn't feel like this met inclusion criteria and did not feel like this was the uh, place that they wanted to invest their resources. Yeah, which, you know... Um it, that's that it's 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 just the way that case happened to go but i think it's important to to realize what is the world's literature on va ecmo on vv ecmo for one of these aortic dissection cases and basically right now there's none there's there's no data at all we have one case report of a guy who got put on va ecmo after his cardiac arrest, he had a witness V-fibrous. He got put on VA ECMO. He went to surgery. Uh, he ended up surviving, but with a CPC score of four. So, so not a great neurologic outcome. Uh, and that's that's pretty much the only case out there. There's a few other papers that kind of mention in the tables in the back talking about, oh, well, we put this guy in VA ECMO. We put that guy in VA ECMO. Um, those, those papers that you're referencing mention two cases from a Japanese cohort, you know, registry trial. And then uh, there's one more case that they happen to mention in in some of the cardiothoracic literature about, oh, yeah, we use the femoral arterial site. But basically, in terms of detailed cases, there's one case report out there. And that guy survived just with a poor neurologic outcome. And so exactly what you're saying happened in this in this case at Utah, which is um, they they identified that he had a he had a dissection on TEE. They were in the middle of cannulating for ECMO, and they decided to to call the case. Which, which, um, knowing what I know now, if I was in the exact same position, I don't think I would call the case. Okay, but I can I can for sure uh, relate to our friends from the University of Utah in that over the course of our program, the last you know ten years, we've had so many times where you're going up and down and and. Uh, and trying to, to not only do the best thing for the patient, but do the best thing for the program, make sure that you can have a, be ready to do the next thing for the next patient. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand keeping a tight inclusion criteria is important. And so maybe this, uh, along with maybe some of our other colleagues out there who have, can chime in on this, can start changing the mantra as far as aortic dissection and eCPR. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, 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 I do not want to sound like I'm criticizing the care that they gave. I think that that they are doing their absolute best to help as many people as they can. And if we start going beyond uh, our inclusion criteria, if we start putting anybody we feel like on ECMO that we think may have a chance, I think it's very quickly going to to find us in trouble, and we're not going to be able to save those people that we need that we that we really need to be able to save. But what I do think is that this is an area ripe for research. I think that this is an area where we can say in the future, hey, look, maybe we should be putting these cases on ECMO so that we know ahead of time, hey, if we get a dissection, we're going to put them on. That's just that's that's our policy. Okay, so uh, two last just pie-in-the-sky areas to think about. They cool these patients way farther than our targeted temperature management. You know, we've talked about this back uh, many times before on this podcast, but should we, knowing that they're going to go to the operating room and probably get taken down to 25 degrees, should we start that process in the ER, Garrett? Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a phenomenal question. I have my own feelings about it. I don't I don't have any hard data because obviously none of that exists. But Limmer took this guy down, this guy that that we had. He took him down to 18 degrees. He did deep hypothermia for this guy, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. If the, you can minimize the amount of damage that you have to your brain with these low flow states, with 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 all of this injury that you're having, I think it makes sense to do so. And so it makes sense to me if we have these people on ECMO to turn the temperature all the way down to at least 28, you know, at most 28, if not 24, 20 degrees, like they would do in the operating room until we can figure things out and then rewarm them at a later date. I think that makes a lot of sense. Super cool. Uh, the last thing that has just kind of come up, we've talked about all kinds of different cannulation strategies here as well. I, I don't really know a quick way to get an axillary artery, but I think it's something we should start exploring, uh, on ways that we can access that vessel more quickly. Cause that might eliminate a lot of the trepidation we have about these cases. If we can rapidly get a cannula into the axillary artery. Totally. I, I think that getting a cannula into the axillary, axillary artery would be would be better than doing it in the femoral artery. The one thing that I will say is it takes time to identify it. You have to be able to do the dissection on the right side of the chest, which is uh, a skill set. Um, and then a lot of the times the surgeons are not putting the cannula directly into the artery, which is another kind of a wrinkle in us being able to do it downstairs. They're putting on these graphs, suturing the graphs to the axillary artery, and then and then putting in the flows to these chimney graphs. So uh, definitely, definitely would require a little bit of work. But the benefit is you get full anterograde uh, flow through the aorta. Um, overall risk benefit, to be honest, now that I know how commonly they're putting people on femoral arterial access sites. I think I would just go for the femoral artery. And that's and that's what Limmer did in this case. You know, he did both. He put in a cannula, uh, he did a graft to that axillary artery, but he also put in a cannula to the femoral artery. And then when he was doing his case, you know, at certain points in the case, he's having to clamp the aorta and he's measuring right 
radial arterial pressures for his axillary artery, and he's also measuring left radial arterial pressures for his femoral access site. So he's, he's kind of splitting the body in half, left, right, and, and doing them both that way. Mm. Yeah, so much in there. All right, Garrett, anything else you got for this? I, I think that, that this was a real uh, eye-opening learning case for us, you know, just like I think most ER docs, most people getting into this field, I kind of had in the back of my mind, dissection is kind of a contraindication. Dissection is kind of a contraindication. Um, and the more that, the more that I, I look into it, I'm not, I'm not sure that it really is the, the degree of a contraindication that, that we had always imagined. You know, in this guy, we were able to get uh, pressures up. We were able to get a good map using vasopressors alone. I'm glad we didn't put him on ECMO. But I think knowing what I know now, if he had arrested one more time, putting him on ECMO, on VA ECMO, would have been, would have been the right move for him. All right. Garrett Sterling, Zach Shiner, March ED ECMO, mad props to Joe Velezzo, Carl Limmer, and Craig Larson for saving this guy's life. From ED ECMO, signing out.